The opinions and views expressed in Dead Men Do Tell Tales and all affiliated media are Jordan and Nicole's and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of their training program or others working in the field of medical legal death investigation. Welcome to Dead Men Do Tell Tales, a podcast about forensic pathology-related topics. I'm Nicole Kroom. And I'm Jordan Taylor. And we're both pathology residents who are going into forensic pathology. And this is our second episode we're recording in a row, so if we get a little slap happy, that's why. Yep. Today we wanted to talk about <laughs> wind-related natural disasters and events. And I'm going to start off talking about cyclones. So cyclones are large-scale air masses that rotate around a strong center of low atmospheric pressure. So these are characterized by the inward spiraling winds that rotate around this low pressure. And the largest low pressure systems are polar vortices and extratropical cyclones. And there are warm core cyclones, and those include tropical cyclones and subtropical cyclones. And those are the ones that we typically think of when we think of the natural disasters of the cyclones. Also, I'm going to briefly throw in here, technically tornadoes are cyclones, just very tiny, because it's still centered around this low pressure area. We think of them as very different things, and yeah. realistically they are, but technically it's, you know, this rotating thing around low pressure, so a tornado falls into that category, which yeah. I found interesting. Yeah. Um, it's all a spectrum. It's man. all a spectrum. <laughs> Really, if coal spins really fast, she causes a little bit. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so from here on out, I'm going to talk about tropical cyclones. And these are what we usually think of. So a tropical cyclone is very similar. Rotating storm around a central low pressure area. These are a closed low pressure atmospheric circulation. They're associated with strong winds and the spiral arrangement of thunderstorms that produce heavy rain or squalls. There's also an associated eye with these, which is in the center of a mature tropical cyclone where the air is sinking rather than rising that both suppresses cloud formation and wind. And they're usually circular and they can range anywhere from as small as, the smallest one I saw was like two miles across <laughs> to as large as 230 miles across is the largest Whoa. eye. So quite the range. Oh my gosh. In the Atlantic and Northeastern Pacific, we call them hurricanes. Mm-hmm. So as most of our probably American people listening to this, they're all hurricanes. In the Indian and South Pacific, they call them cyclones. And in, in the Northwest Pacific, they're called typhoons. Mm. So typhoons, cyclones, and hurricanes are all the same thing. It just depends on where you are. And what do these things cause? So obviously, there's a ton of rain. So you have heavy rains, associated floods, and then they cause these enormous winds so those can cause the physical wind themselves. They can start causing large waves. They also, like these winds can destroy and damage buildings, vehicle, bridges, other objects. They can start sending projectiles. And that's kind of what I think of when I think of, you know, the tornadoes sending projectiles places. That's kind of how it all fits into, how I tie them together in the same bigger, bigger category. Yeah. Um, and then because 
these form over water. They disrupt international shipping, cause shipwrecks, disrupt travel. So they have the physical effects from the thing itself. Mm -hmm. They have the associated effects of people not moving places. And then a bunch of other little things. So storm surge is when the sea level increases locally based on where the hurricane is. And historically, about 90% of the deaths associated with hurricanes, I'm going to say hurricanes, even though I mean cyclones from here on out, so just throwing that out there, are about 90% of the deaths are associated with the storm surge, not with the winds or the other damage. It's oh. the storm surge coming in. Okay. Um, they also can spawn tornadoes, mm. which I thought was really interesting. Because there's this vertical wind shear, especially kind of towards the edges, and those can spin off into tornadoes. I thought human babies were bad. <laughs> What's the baby of a hurricane? A tornado. <laughs> <laughs> um, some of the more infrastructure damages, you can get power outages, bridge, dis- bridge destructions. Apparently on the Gulf and the East Coast, it averages $5 billion a year in damages. Five billion? Five billion on the Gulf and East Coasts. Ooh. So that's just like built into your budget. Just assume this is going to happen. Oh, man. And then, of course, hurricanes kind of bring the ocean onto the land. (laughs) And in doing this, they bring salt. So you have salt coming in to these freshwater areas, which you have plants and animals that can't deal with the salt. So then you get plants and animals that die. Um, and you can think of crops and that type of thing. Yeah. And they also carry toxins and acids onto the shore with the flood water, which, of course, is then also bad for people and animals and that kind of thing. So in the past 200 years, over 1.9 million people have died from various hurricanes. And a vast majority of this is caused by large areas of standing water that then leads to infection including mosquito-borne illness, which, as we learned in our Dying from Animals mm-hmm. podcast, yep. causes a surprising amount of deaths around the world. And then, of course, crowded evacuees and shelters can lead to disease prop- propagation and mm-hmm. that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And then I wanted to talk about some record cyclones, record tropical cyclones. So the deadliest tropical cyclone was the Great Bola Cyclone in Bangladesh in 1970 around the Bay of Bengal. And this caused over 500,000 deaths. Whoa. And I feel like we don't hear a lot about about these, but I realize that Bangladesh has a lot of more of these windy type of things. I also saw them a lot in tornadoes. The deadliest was in Bangladesh. The costliest was Hurricane Katrina in 2005 and Hurricane Harvey in 2017. They both cost about $125 billion. This one was a very interesting stat, kind of going back to Hurricane Babies. Um, Hurricane Ivan in 2004 spawned 120 tornadoes. What? Yeah. That is a lot of babies. It's a lot of babies. Use some birth control. (laughs) Too many babies. Too many babies. And then the most rainfall was a cyclone called Hyacinth in 1980 that led to 239 and a half inches of rain. How many? 239 and a half. 240 inches of rain. That's a half too much. (laughs) It's that extra half inch that did them in. But think about it. That's 20 feet. That's 20 feet of rainfall. That is too much rainfall. So it's just like I was looking at some of these. There were so many. There's a fantastic Wikipedia article of like 
record hurricanes or sorry record tropical cyclones and those were just some of the ones that i felt like mentioning but it's it's insane so you mentioned hurricane katrina in an earlier episode we talked about mass fatality events and uh demort the disaster mortuary operational team that goes out to help with identifying bodies and helping determine causes of death after large mass incidents so there was actually a demort operations that happened after hurricane katrina and they started working out there august 28th 2005 and they cleared out march 1st 2006 yeah yeah and over the six months over a thousand different demort members worked at the site so i would imagine you can't spend too long there before you need to Filter out for psychological. Yeah. 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 And they helped to identify the remains of people whose bodies were found after Katrina, but they also helped to separate out those who died during the hurricane and those who were disinterred from local cemeteries because that was also a big thing. Yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. So I'm going to talk a little bit about tornadoes and baby hurricanes. Baby hurricanes. As Jordan has alluded to, it's a violently rotating column of air that extends from a thunderstorm that comes into contact with the ground and it results in updrafts created by solar warming of the Earth's surface and develops into this vortex with strong rotating winds and violent pressure changes. And there are about a thousand tornadoes reported nationwide per year and the U.S. experiences more tornadoes than any other country in the world. I saw four times more than in all of Europe. That's crazy. It's insane. Oh, did man. you did you read why? No, I didn't read why. So this was, this, I thought this was really cool. Okay, why? Um, so... North America is a is a huge continent, right? Say what? <laughs> and it spans from an Arctic north okay. to a tropical south. Yeah. But there's no major east-west mountain range. So it leaves this intervening relatively flat area oh. that allows this like this air to continually flow. Oh. And because of this, you can form this like tornado alley type thing. Yes. And if you look at the other parts of the world that have them, they tend to be the flatter areas. But we kind of have this just huge vast area in the middle that's pretty flat that allows this to form so we need to build mountains um i think if we could build a mountain range it'd probably be effective but it also (laughs) might screw up some uh other international travelers or not or or right intranational if a butterfly flaps its wing Mm -hmm. and across the world there's a hurricane i can't imagine we're building a whole mountain range in the middle of the u.s well i know that tornadoes are hurricanes babies oh that's true baby hurricane baby hurricane um so tornado intensity is measured based on the Fujita scale. Yes, I love um, this. Yes, it rates tornadoes on a scale of zero to five based on the amount and type of wind damage yes. that they can create. Yes. And it incorporates 28 different damage indicators to to give this rating. And I really liked this chart that I found. It said that an F0 is like light damage and then mm-hmm. F5 is incredible damage. What I saw was F0 is very weak, so like tree damage. Yeah. And then F5 it takes buildings off foundations and deforms large skyscrapers. Oh. So yeah, extreme. So it's incredible. <laughs> incredible. And F4 is devastating. Deforms large skyscrapers. Yeah. Woof. So most of the statistics I had were from the United States. Uh, and in 2019, the U.S. experienced 1,431 tornadoes. Okay. Um, which was a little bit less than in 2018. And tornadoes killed 38 people. Okay. On average? Um, from January to November in 2019 2019. alone. 
compared with nine people for the same period in 2018. Okay. So more people died from hurricanes. And not hurricanes. Baby hurricanes. Baby hurricanes. Um, from tornadoes last year than in 2018. Well, babies are pretty deadly, so. And you mentioned Tornado Alley, which yes. people who are not in the U.S., mm. and even people in the U.S. might not know what that is, but it's, there are two regions in the U.S. that have disproportionately high frequency of tornadoes. Florida is yes. one, and then Tornado Alley is another, which is this region in the south central U.S. And the boundaries are kind of debatable, but it's this region that's kind of from central Texas northward to northern Iowa and from central Kansas and Nebraska east to western Ohio. And typically tornadoes happen in this area in the late spring and occasionally the early fall. And the Gulf Coast uh, has this area that is a separate tornado maximum and it's nicknamed Dixie Alley. Yes. Yes. Um, and the top 10 states by number of tornadoes in 2018, Louisiana was number one. Hmm, I can see that. Yeah. 86 tornadoes, one fatality. That's too many. But yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So in the U.S., uh, there are an average of 83 deaths and 200 plus serious injuries yearly from tornadoes. And most of the deaths occur before people reach the hospital. Mm, yeah. And basements and interior rooms of stationary buildings are the safest locations. I was reading this interesting thing. I was saying that there's like this myth that the South, I think it was like the Southwest corner is the safest place to be, but they say you want to be essentially on the corner that's the furthest away from where the tornado is going to hit. And based on the path that they normally take, it's actually the Northeast corner that you want to be in. So there's some weird myths about like, you know, overpasses are safe, but they're actually really, really unsafe. Yeah. So like just, yeah. Get thee to a basement. Get into a basement or apparently in the lowest central room. Like if it's a one floor, you want to be in the low one in the center. Mm. Okay. Close your windows. Yes. There's apparently also a thing that's saying like, they say that, because it's low pressure that it'll blow out your windows, but it's it ends up causing more damage if you leave your windows open. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Um, so there was actually this study. It's kind of old. I didn't find a more recent one. It's from 1989. But they looked at um, individuals You're who calling are... calling me old. Yes, I am. Um, they looked at individuals who were injured or killed by a series of tornadoes. And this is in Canada. But they were trying to see what the patterns of injury were from tornadoes. Many serious injuries and almost all, 83% of the deaths, were the result of becoming airborne, while most minor injuries... Oh no, like getting lifted up like yeah. a cow? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what I picture. <laughs> like in all the movies, they have a cow. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So 83% of deaths are caused by becoming airborne. Oh, no. And most minor injuries, 94%, were due to being struck by objects. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah. So... 10 of those who died in this study were reported to have been, they, they became airborne and then they struck the ground or a fixed object with force. Okay. And then the remaining two deaths in this particular study were crushed by objects. Okay. And head injury was the most common injury type in okay. fatalities. Makes sense. Um, followed by crush injuries to the chest, abdomen, and pelvis. Just like when a coconut falls on you. you right. hit in the head. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to do well. Exactly. And risk factors for death or injury were poor building anchorage, location other than a basement, especially being outdoors, age over 70, and high wind strength, which is maybe not surprising. Yeah. And serious injury rate for occupants in mobile homes was 85.1 per 100,000 compared to 3 per 100,000 in standard construction homes. I, again, shouldn't be surprised, but that's a big number. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason why elderly were more at risk 
was likely that they were um, less likely to receive warning or to take effective protective actions. And then also they have a lot more comorbidities. So chronic medical conditions that can contribute to a slowed reaction or increased risk of morbidity and mortality in any given situation. Did they take out like people that had heart attacks because there's a tornado? Um, I think they did. Well, I don't know because none of the the fatalities that they had in this study were due to heart attacks. Okay, okay. And then in the study, the majority, so ninety one percent of the people that they interviewed, reported a warning time of less than one minute before the tornado struck. Okay. And twenty five percent of these reported no warning at all. Wow. And the okay. remaining nine percent reported only one to five minutes of warning. Well, I guess like. That's what you think of because it's not like they come from very far away. So one of the things I was seeing is, so most tornadoes are like, the wind speeds are less than 110 miles an hour. They're about 250 feet across and they travel only a few miles before dissipating. So they don't travel. They're not around for that long. So they form, they cause a lot of damage and then they go away. Like there are some, like the most extreme, you know, can cover dozens of miles, but the vast majority of these don't cover that much distance before they go away. So like makes sense that you wouldn't have that much warning. Right. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. But it just, that's terrifying. Yeah. No, it is. Oh, Hey, massive winds. (laughs) I had this recurring nightmare when I was a child of like being trapped in a house fire while there was a tornado outside. Oh my God. I don't know why, but it was like it, it what happened to I you? It's <laughs> a lot of things. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it was just one of those, like, I think it's one of those, like, we always did, like, the drills in school. Oh. And, like, the school drills always freaked me out. Because, yeah. like, you have to get out from the fire, but it's a tornado. So you have to stay inside because of the tornado. And there was no winning. Yeah. Sounds wonderful. I also had a recurring nightmare of Raggedy Ann chasing me. So there was that, too. I don't know which one's more terrifying. <laughs> Raggedy Ann coming at you through the fire while the tornado was around <laughs> <No>. the house. <laughs> So tornadoes can also do this crazy thing where they come in families. They're called tornado outbreaks or tornado family outbreaks. And in 1974, there was a super outbreak where there were 24 hours where 148 tornadoes occurred in the U.S. and Ontario. They caused $843 million in damage. It covered 900 square miles and covered 26,000 mile path. What? Up to 15 tornadoes were on the ground at one time. No. 319 people died and over 5,000 people were injured. This was in 1974. This is too many. And this is U.S. and Ontario. Then. No. In 2011, there was this thing called the super outbreak that occurred over three days from April 24 days, April 25th to April 28th. There were in these like three to four days, there were 360 tornadoes. On April 27th alone, there were 216 confirmed tornadoes. 348 people died, and there were $11 billion in damages. Oh, my gosh. So essentially there's a storm system that comes in, and somehow the way that the, the vertical wind shear is happening is just causing, like, I don't know, just baby tornadoes coming out of everything. And I'm sure a lot of these were smaller, but there were plenty yeah. that were bigger that caused just a lot of damage and a lot of death. So tornadoes can be super, super terrifying. In terms of the worst tornadoes, there was there was a tri-state tornado in Missouri, Illinois, and Indiana. This, so it's one tornado. Mm-hmm. It was March 18th, 1925. 
It was 219 miles long. It lasted three and a half hours. And 695 people died from this one tornado that tracked its way from Missouri to Illinois to Indiana. Whoa. The deadliest tornado was in Bangladesh, which is why I said Bang- yeah. Bangladesh and Indonesia. Don't. Don't go. Maybe Indonesia was a fire episode. I might be getting these confused. Oh, Indonesia was yeah, a fire So Bangladesh for wind. It was called the Dalapur Salturia Tornado. And it was April 26, 1989. And it killed 1,300 people. 1,300? 1,300. And then the most expensive was the 2011 super outbreak that I mentioned above. Yeah, $11 billion in damages. So, But I did want to mention a few like adorable parts of tornadoes. <laughs> okay. So there are these things called gust nados, which are small vertical swells associated with a gust front or a downburst. So it's not connected to that cloud base, and it's generally less strong, but it's kind of when you just kind of get a twirl of... It's not quite as little as a dust devil, which is the vertical swirling column of air under totally clear skies. It's really weak, but it's like a kind of in between a dust devil and a weaker tornado. But it's nowhere as strong as even like the weakest tornado. Yeah. There are things called fire whirls, fire devils, fire nados, or fire twisters, which are small-scale tornado-like circulations that happen near intense heat source. So obviously near wildfires, you can get some heavy winds. So from these winds and from these drafts, you can... They're not full tornadoes. It doesn't reach from ground to cloud, Mm -hmm. but they cause swirls of essentially fire or heat. Fire and wind acting together. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Then steam devils are rotating updrafts like 50 to 200 meters that involve steam or smoke. Okay. So they're not as fast. They're pretty rare. And they're apparently associated with like a power plant smokestack. Oh. Hot springs or deserts. And then the last one I have to mention is Sharknado. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which obviously is going to come out of all of these and is the most <laughs> devastating and likely to kill all of us. So. <laughs> I mean, strong wind plus sharp teeth. It's yeah. true. Imagine if not only you're impaled by a flying object, you're impaled by flying shark mouth. So another thing that I came across when I was looking up wind that can kill you were dust storms, which is like earth and wind acting together in tandem to try to kill you. So these occur when strong winds lift large amounts of sand and dust from bare dry soils into the atmosphere. Okay. And they are common in arid and semi-arid regions, and they're usually caused by thunderstorms or strong pressure gradients associated with cyclones. Okay. And aerosols, uh, particularly mineral dusts, impact weather as well as global and regional climate. So when these big dust storms happen, they act as condensation for warm cloud formation, and they also have greenhouse effects. So they contribute to climate change. And in terms of human health, particles that are larger than 10 micrometers are not breathable, and they can cause damage to external organs. So they cause a lot of skin and eye irritation, and they can cause infections in the eye. And then smaller particles in these dust storms, so those that are smaller than 10 micrometers, get trapped in the nose, mouth, and upper respiratory tract, and they can cause exacerbation of things like asthma. They can also cause inflammation, um, infections like pneumonia, which is infection of the lung. Um, And then finer particles than that can enter the bloodstream and they can affect internal organs and be, uh, and can exacerbate like heart disease. Okay. Gotcha. It kind of reminds me a lot of like wildfire smoke. Yes. 
And there was this model assessment in 2014 that estimated that exposure to dust particles cause about 400,000 premature deaths by cardiopulmonary disease wow. in the over 30 population. So so they're not talking about kids, which I'm sure also were probably yeah. pretty affected. Yeah. Uh, and some infectious diseases can also be transmitted by dust. So meningococcal meningitis, mm, which is a yep. bacterial infection of the layer of tissue that surrounds the brain and spinal cord can be caused by dust. So outbreaks occur worldwide, but the highest incidence is found in this meningitis belt, which is... There's a meningitis belt? There is. So the meningitis belt is a part of sub-Saharan Africa, and there's an estimated population of 300 million people that live there. And so they have these recurrent outbreaks of meningococcal meningitis that have a strong seasonal pattern, and they're linked to low humidity and dusty conditions. So... Researchers believe that the inhalation of dust particles and hot and dry weather cause damage to the nose and throat oh. that create favorable conditions for this bacterial infection to take hold. Gotcha. And also iron oxides in those dust particles may enhance the risk of infection. Dust also plays a role in the transmission of something called valley fever, mm-hmm. which we are very familiar with here yep. in uh, California. And it's caused by the coccyoides fungi spores. So another thing that dust storms impact is agriculture and transport. Surface dust deposits have a lot of micronutrients, but if there's too much dust, then they can reduce crop yields, cause loss of plant tissue, and reduce photosynthetic activity by, you know, blocking out the sunlight. Yes. And then Indirect dust deposits can also impact water sources, so make it harder for the plants to get water. Mm-hmm. Um, and then reductions in visibility due to the airborne dust can impact transport, so aircraft can have difficulty taking off. People don't want to drive, and it can cause a lot of damage to yeah, engines. Yeah, sounds like a lot of the... Uh... Yeah, I feel like the thing is with all of these natural things, so volcanoes can do it to jet planes, mm-hmm. hurricanes do, do it to flights, and um, water transport. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like any of these things that affect the environment in a major way are going to shut down major transport. Yeah. And I I mean, I hadn't thought a lot about dust storms until I was reading, I mean, researching for this episode. Um, but apparently in India, there was this huge dust storm in 2018 that killed over 127 people. And... 14 of those people were killed by lightning strikes. So, I guess it makes sense because you said it's associated with thunderstorms. Right, yeah. So the draft. same way that yeah. volcanic cloud plumes can cause uh, lightning because of all those little Particulate. particles hitting yeah. each other, um, these dust storms can generate uh, electrical activity leading to lightning strikes. And they they actually aren't exactly sure why they it's, cause lightning. It's funny because there's a part of me that's like, well, yeah, it's really dry. And when it's really dry, that's like when things get staticky. So, yeah, of course, it makes sense that like it just, it's a connection. Like I can't tell you exactly why, but like it kind of makes sense that they all are associated with this drier, arid, staticky yeah. electric storm mess. It's, yeah. So I, I was looking at a couple of physics papers that were looking at. You are at... way more into this research thing than well, I, I was like, these. why? Why all this lightning? Um, and I 
was horrible at physics, still horrible at physics. But it's like all these little particles hitting each other, but they're not sure exactly what's causing that initial charge to build up. Okay. But then once the particles start hitting each other with that charge, they just create bigger and bigger charges, which allow the lightning to form. But they still have not figured out like why this initial charge happens. Okay. But I thought that was interesting that like 14 of the deaths were due to lightning in these dust storms. So I'm going to talk about something that is going to lead directly into my story. So I want to start with a question. Have you ever heard of exploding lakes? That would be a no. Okay. So (laughs) there are these things called limnic eruptions. They're also known as lake overturn. And this happens when dissolved carbon dioxide suddenly erupts from deep lake waters and explodes up and into the atmosphere, local atmosphere. So like a Mentos being dropped into a Diet Coke. So like a Mentos being dropped into a Diet Coke. What? So I thought this was relevant because I associate CO2 more with gases and air, and it's kind of this natural gas air explosion, and it kind of made sense for me in this wind category. So these are essentially, there are three lakes in the world that are i thought you were gonna say there are three lakes in the world i was like i'm pretty (laughs) sure that's not true but fine there are three lakes in the world that are identified as these exploding lakes okay and essentially you have this pocket of magma Mm -hmm. underneath the lake and it slowly is letting co2 out into the water and as you have um like you have a soda can right and it's closed And then you crack it open and it's no longer under pressure. So it releases some of the CO2, Mm -hmm. right? So essentially from the bottom, in the bottom, you're starting to get all this pressure buildup. And what will happen is some of these little bubbles will start to form. And when the bubbles start to form, that water is then lifted higher, right? Because it's less dense. Mm -hmm. And then when that happens, that's now stimulating more water to let more CO2 out. And you slowly get this kind of column of gas. And then you get this point, you kind of like had like the straw that broke the camel's back, essentially. Then you get this column of gas, at which point the water at the bottom of that column is then pulled up by the suction from all of this gas dissipating up very quickly. Yeah. And that will then kind of explode up and out. So these lakes are either known as limnically active lakes or exploding lakes. And this is largely invisible until it happens there might be some other signs of there being some co2 in the water but it's largely you don't really know that it's there awesome and then once the co2 explodes up yep co2 is more dense than air so then this cloud descends down and then what happens when you have co2 that's displacing all the oxygen bad things bad things (laughs) So it then can suffocate wildlife, <gasps> livestock, and humans. Oh, no. So essentially this large cloud of CO2 from this explosion yeah. can form around the lake. that's denser than the air. It displaces that breathable air and results in asphyxia. Oh, my God. So as we know, CO2 makes the blood more acidic. It can cause CO2 poisoning, which causes increased respiratory rate, tachycardia, so a fast heart rate cardiac arrhythmia so your heart's not beating right and impaired consciousness so like i said there are three of these around the world okay. and i'm going to tell you Please about tell me three none of them, them are near here none of them are near here oh good they're okay. none they're yeah cameroon um drc Aww. so you're safe unless you got a cameroon or drc okay so the first of which 
I don't have any stories about ancient exploding lakes. Yeah. So the first one we talk about is Lake Monown. It's located in a volcanic field in Cameroon on August 15th, 1984 at 11 at 10:30 p.m. People around the lake heard an explosion, which was followed by a dense cloud of gas emanating from a crater that opened in the lake that descended down. 37 people reportedly died between 3 a.m. and dawn. Whoa. And those that survived reported a cloud that had an acidic and bitter smell. Yeah. Kind of like when you crack open that the soda and you first get that smell of just CO2. Like that, but everywhere. My initial thought was the lake farting. <laughs> <laughs> it being so noxious. <laughs> pretty much. It's pretty accurate. So there was apparently around Lake Manown, there was a truck with 12 people in it and its engine stopped. And I'm assuming that's because there wasn't any more oxygen because like it needs the oxygen to combust. Yeah. So the engine stopped and some of the people got out to find an alternate way to get there and then they died. No! (laughs) But there were two people that were sitting on top of the truck that apparently survived because they were high enough that they were above where the CO2 cloud descended on them. And again, these are like, I, I found this in a couple of places, yeah. but like, all seem like slightly implausible stories. Oh my gosh. Um, I mean, life is implausible. Yeah, that's true. And then the other one, and this one was, surprise, gets worse. Lake Nios, which is also in Cameroon, and it's within the Oku volcanic field. So there's this known pocket of magma be- below this lake. And there's... As with most magma, and when you mention in Yellowstone the pocket of magma below it, yeah, that's what causes geysers. It's a similar thing. It's a right. CO2 buildup in this explosion. Mm-hmm. But this is just concentrated throughout this lake. Right. And then once it dissipates, it kind of pulls in all the CO2 in a and it doesn't like geyser up, it just kind of explodes. Right. Up. Okay. And so August twenty first, nineteen eighty six, so about two years later, almost to the day, between a hundred and three hundred thousand tons of carbon dioxide was released into the air about 100 meters or 330 feet up. No. So that's a football field. Ugh. Up. This then quickly descended and covered an area of 25 kilometers or 16 miles from the shore of the lake. Whoa. So 16 miles out. 1,746 people died. What? And over 3,500 livestock died. What? How have I never heard of right? this? There was a skin change color on the victims, and I tried to look into this, and I couldn't find more distinct details. But it led scientists to hypothesize that the glass ca- that the gas cloud might have con- contained dissolved oxygen, such as hydrochloric acid. <gasps> but there is a question on if this is like disputed. Okay. There were also blisters found on the skin that could have been from pressure ulcers because there was such low, low blood O2. Yeah. That like of such low blood oxygen that like your body couldn't like heal well at all so there were some pressure ulcers that they found oh my god um interestingly most of the vegetation was okay really um except directly adjacent to this lake where there was a where they where they surmised that a 24 meter so a 79 foot tsunami resulted (laughs) from this lake exploding well i guess plants take in the co2 so it makes sense that the vegetation would be okay but there were other areas that like there's been i think around um manown there was some vegetation issue um but yeah but right around is from the force of the tsunami and then apparently the water around this lake turned to a deep red 
from all the iron at the bottom of the lake being turned over. And the water level was almost a meter lower after. I wonder how much of that was from the water going versus how much of that was carbon dioxide that's now not in the water anymore. Crazy, right? Yeah. So this was the first large-scale asphyxiation caused by a natural event. Because all of these people died... Because they didn't have oxygen. Right. They all died from asphyxiation <sighs> suddenly. Which, as we discussed from Pompeii, asphyxiation is it's one of the worst ways to go. Like, I yeah. know. So what caused this? As I said, there needs to be that nidus that like starts the CO2 dissipating. Right. So they think that either there was a very small volcanic eruption or there was a landslide that like locally displaced the water and started this going. Oh. So I mentioned there were three lakes. Yeah. The third one, I do not have a large disaster to tell you about. Okay. Well, that's good. But (laughs) this is Lake Kivu, which is in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Mm -hmm. which, as a lot of people know, is an active area of armed conflict. Mm -hmm. Lake Kivu is 1,700 times bigger than Nyos. Okay. And it's much more densely populated. There's more than 2 million people living along the shore. But the CO2 is not yet at a level that they're really worried about it. It technically counts as a limitically active or an explosive lake. But we're not there with CO2 yet. And again, I couldn't find anything about it historically having an eruption. Right. But there are some high rates of methane dissociation around this lake. And it's rising in temperature every year. So there are definitely concerns. And it is near Mount Niragongo, which is an active volcano, volcano, volcano <laughs> which erupted in January 2002. Oh. So it has the source of CO2 coming right, in. Yeah. So horrible things. What can we do to fix it? Okay. So I mentioned that often the CO2 gets dissipated in a column form. Yeah. So you can imagine, well, how can we dissipate this even better? Why don't we put pipes in there that will control the distribution before the CO2 is so concentrated that it'll all go boom at once. Why don't we? So they have started (laughs) putting in what essentially surmount to these long pipes that help dissipate the CO2. Yeah. um, From the bottom up through the top that'll slowly dissipate. But as I said, this is a high CO2 level, which means it's pretty acidic. So it can corrode the metal, which means it needs a lot of upkeep. Yeah. So they've done it in Nios and Manown. So it's starting, but it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of long-term upkeep to make sure that it's still not getting destroyed. And then the other, of course, there's always a bad side when you try to help something. Right. They're concerned that this may form a thin layer of CO2 on the surface. Because, like, obviously the pipe's coming up to the surface and it's dissipating the CO2. Right. So there's a concern, like, could it lead to problems with wildlife? Mm. As we said, the plants probably don't dislike it. But, or at least, I mean, they need a certain balance, but like they don't hate it as much as the deer that are feasting next to the lake. Yeah. But there is a concern that um, wildlife could be exposed to higher levels of CO2. Oh, wow. So exploding lakes is now a thing we also have to be worried about. But there are only three in the world. And they're all in Africa? Cameroon and the DRC. Huh. That we know of. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Well, now I'm not going to be... I'm just, 
I can't go outside. This there was is a, a series high... of episodes in which we're going to make everybody agoraphobic. There was a high wind advisory this weekend and I was walking yes. in Golden Gate Park and I was like, I hope a tree doesn't fall out of another tree on top of me. <laughs> I went on a run yeah. around Lake Merced and there were like branches everywhere. Yeah. And the entire time I was like, one of these is going <laughs> to fall on me and kill me. <laughs> I survived. But yeah. That's good. Exercise is good for you. Yeah. Nature is sometimes good for you when Nature exploding lakes and falling trees aren't kills to kill you. you. <laughs> and coconuts. Don't forget and the coconuts. coconuts. Yep. So do you have more nature killing you stories? I do. So my story is about a tornado. So I'm going to talk about the Joplin tornado. Okay. So on May 22nd, 2011, a mild wide F5, so highest on that Fujita scale tornado, touched down just to the west of Joplin, Missouri, and rampaged through town. Okay. And winds were whipping at over 200 miles per hour. 158 people died, and more than 1,100 were injured. Wow. Almost half the town was destroyed. So in the weeks after the tornado, doctors started to notice something kind of weird about some of the wounds among a few of the injured. Okay. So, quote, their wounds were blackening, infected by Ah. fungi, so aggressive that the flesh actually sprouted fuzzy white mold, as if they were a forgotten orange or loaf of bread, end quote. Yeast, 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 (laughs) yeast, yeast. So, doctors sampled the wounds and grew the fungus in the lab and were astonished to find 13 people had all become infected by a single fungus rarely seen in humans. Okay, this, this is, is honestly one of those things. So one of the hospitals we work at is San Francisco General, and they have a tech there who is really good at fungus, and he is amazing at identifying and growing these, and he'll show you all this crazy stuff. And because SF General's population is a lot of homeless people, yeah. you get this crazy fungus that you never see anywhere else. And so now I'm like ready for a story. So this is one of those fungi. Okay. Um, it's Apophomyces trapeziformis. Okay. And only 74 cases had ever been recorded before these 13 cases all in one time. Okay. So the fungus went on to kill or contribute to the deaths of five of those 13 people. So 38%. Disseminated? Uh, I don't know. Okay. Uh, They did not do autopsies on these people. I wouldn't want to touch them either. Well, but I would be curious. I'd be curious. But you can do an autopsy without going in. So, Apophysomyces is a zygomycete, which is one of the five major groups of fungi. Um, And under normal conditions, Apophysomyces... You got it. I have faith in you. (laughs) You can nail this. Apophysomyces scavenges dead plants and can no more infect a human than order a pizza. (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, So... That gets tossed out when an object traveling in excess of 200 miles per hour injects the fungus directly into human flesh, which is what happened in this tornado. Pew, 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 pew. Yep. So according to Glenn Roberts, a professor of lab medicine, pathology, and microbiology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, in the lab, apophysomyces is referred to as a lid lifter. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. Because within a matter of hours, the fungus can grow from a single spore to a mass mm-hmm. that literally raises the roof of its Petri dish and crawls down the side. They'll show you some of them when you rotate through the micro. It's, I, it's crazy. I'm so excited to see. So you can imagine what this would do to the inside of a human wound. Um, and fungus is particularly good at infiltrating the walls and insides of blood vessels, something we call angio-invasion. 
So the filaments from the fungus form these nets and they filter the blood, uh, the red and white cells of the blood, and they can create clots within the vessels. So then the clot blocks blood flow to the tissue and causes it to die and blacken. Yes. Which I mentioned earlier when they were describing the wounds. Yes. So this is a photo from one of the actual people that was infected. It looks like somebody took a bite out of him. And then it just kind of grew. It kind of looks like the teeth marks. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then it has some of the, the fuzzy bones. So on, <laughs> um, <laughs> on average, the patients had to undergo four debridements. Oof. So resection of all of the necrotic tissue. Oof. And then they had antifungals. What, what antifungal works on this? Did uh, you write that down? I didn't write it down. Okay. But apparently the fungus grew so fast into the tissue and bone of one patient that had suffered a deep wound to his upper chest that doctors had to replace at least part of his rib cage with titanium. No. Yes. No. Yep. And of the five patients who died, all of them did so within two weeks of samples being taken. And they were all still infected when they died and no autopsies, as I mentioned, were performed in any of the deaths. Nature, stop. Yep. Stop. Yep. So a team from the CDC came out to investigate this outbreak and they found that the risk factor for developing this infunction, uh, in infection, <laughs> that's what it's called, the fungus in, infection, in, in, in function, in function. <laughs> done, yep. um, was having many puncture TNT. wounds <laughs> or lacerations. Um, and of the 13 who had become infected, they had been in the zone of greatest destruction during the storm. Um, and this was not the first time that apophysomyces had turned up after a natural disaster Hmm. two people that were injured during the 2004 indian ocean tsunami were infected by it and eight people after a 1985 volcanic eruption in colombia were infected and in all cases penetrating trauma was the most common denominator yeah so prior investigations of this type of outbreak usually implicate contaminated medical equipment (laughs) um but this time, the CDC did not find any evidence of risk related to equipment exposure. Gotcha. It was all um, due to having these penetrating injuries from tornadoes. And apparently, tornado wounds tend to be very highly contaminated with foreign material. Tornado wounds. <laughs> tornado wounds. It's <laughs> like a new category. Yeah. So wound infections from tornado injuries are usually polymicrobial, so lots of different types of organisms. So rates of infection are usually pretty high after Mm -hmm. tornadoes just because it's like all of this debris is also getting whipped into the wounds. So yeah, I thought that it was just crazy interesting that they had this big outbreak, which is a kind of concern after all major disasters because you lose the infrastructure and then also people get injured and they don't have their Yeah, no, it's good because like I feel like in all of our... All of our natural disasters thus far, we've mentioned famine and disease outbreak, right? But we haven't really delineated one, so this is a good example of like of a kind crazy of outbreak thing that has happened. That, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's really cool. So that that is the fungus outbreak that happened after the Joplin, Missouri tornado. I would say stay inside, but something's going to get you inside. But while you're staying inside, social meets. Social media. <laughs> so if you liked this and any of our other episodes, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. It's how we get boosted up on the different podcasting platform charts and other people hear about us. You can visit our website at deadmendotellpodcast.com where we link to all of our sources in our episode guide. On Twitter, we're at deadmendo. 
On Insta, we're at the Dead Tell Tales. And our Facebook page is Dead Men Do Tell Tales Podcast. And as always, you can send us an email if you have any questions, comments, concerns through the website or directly to the Dead Tell Tales at gmail.com. And our opening theme music is Introducing the Pre-Roll by Lee Rosevear, who you can find on SoundCloud. Thanks, guys. Yep, and stay away from exploding lakes. <laughs> <laughs> Bye.